0: The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 14. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hey, folks, Dan Reed here. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcasts page, com slash podcasts and find my social media icons as well as my YouTube icon. Also, head over to Apple Podcasts, find and rate the show, and please leave a positive comment. The more ratings and the more comments we get, the more people who find the show and the more people who listen are the more people who get cooking. Also, please share the show on social media. If you like the show, please do support us through Patreon. My guest today is is Kyle Mamonis, a biochemist. Kyle's educational background includes a B.S. in biology from Rowan University and a Ph.D. in nutritional science from Rutgers with the dissertation The Metabolic Effects of Linoleic Acid versus Saturated Fat in Male Mice, Female Mice, and Offspring Exposed Maternally. Kyle currently has taken a position as a post-doctoral researcher at the biochemistry lab of Dr. Victor Davidson at the Burnett School of Biomedical Sciences, University of Central Florida. He's been on and had experience with rigorous diet regimes including vegetarian, vegan, raw vegan, primal paleo, a Jonas van Planets, not Marxism, raw paleo, which is raw meats, fats and organs, and other diets. Kyle is presently unaffiliated to a specific diet and has instead a goal to formulate and present a comprehensive and contextualized view of nutrition and health science. Welcome, Kyle. Hey. So before we get going into this, um, just Give us uh, the down and dirty about your background and your studies and your particular field, and then we'll start digging into some diet stuff.
1: Okay. Uh, I became interested in diet pretty much when I started undergrad. I joined a leftist political group, um, and at least half of them, probably almost all of them, were vegetarians. So I became influenced uh, towards that direction. And since I, I guess, just have an analytical or curious mind or whatever, I, I read about it. And then I started reading about veganism. And I went down pretty deep into that. Like at some point, I was just eating fruit, all kinds of strange diets. And then I decided to change my major to biology with the hopes of eventually doing nutritional research because I was so obsessed with it. And so I went through that process. And kept changing my diets. I was on a raw milk, unpasteurized dairy thing for a while. I started eating uh, raw meat. I went through a paleo phase, raw paleo. I was eating like raw organs and gobs of raw suet and all kinds of things. And then finally, I went to graduate school to do a PhD in nutritional science, uh, which I did. And uh, that process and just going through and being able to evaluate scientific articles and instead of just somebody saying this paper proves this, I would read it, read the methods, kind of understand it. It made me skeptical of, I guess, what we're going to talk about here, which is this whole like sugar question. Uh, that's pretty much like the, the short answer.
0: Okay. Well, aside from the vivid image of Hannibal Lecter, um, would you? Would it be fair to say that you or at least the field of science is necessarily skeptical of any of the results it finds and part of science is reproducing what's been done to see if it's accurate and then if it's not going down that rabbit hole of, of just inquiry?
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be, but um, more and more people get niches so that less and less people uh, feel qualified or are considered qualified to question the results of other scientists. And there's a tremendous incentive to get things published. And uh, I don't know exactly why, but positive results, like we showed this, are more publishable than negative results. Uh, Like we showed not this, even though they're the same thing in terms of like a discovery, like we showed that this doesn't do this versus we showed this does this. So there's always this uh, push to show something positive and, uh, rather than showing something negative. And, of course, you know, we're not talking about m- morally speaking.
0: <laughs> no, I understand. I'm just Well, w- w- without going into a, a different show, um, it sounds possibly that there's a political politicization, easy for me to say, of, of science. And that I think we can see with some of the things going on with climate change science. Um, but I also think just as, as the guy who is just the guy in my house um, reading a, res, reading a study that says we found that this to the positive, it's easier to act in the direction of this does this thing than it is to act in the direction of this doesn't do these things, it feels at least it feels like you could be making a positive change for yourself by going in the into the light as opposed to into the dark.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I think. There's a it's it's not that, you know, there's no nefarious reason for it. It's just it is human nature. Like people will say, Oh, well, science is about disproving a null hypothesis or whatever. But in actuality, the way humans tend to operate mentally is they want to prove something. They don't want to disprove a negative. So even though everybody learns, oh, the scientific method is, you know, you take You come up with this hypothesis and then you come up with testable predictions that could disprove it. So you're trying to disprove it. And then if you fail to disprove it, you support it, you know, but everybody in practice, what they're actually thinking is how can I show my theory, you know, my idea is right. That's what they're actually thinking uh, on their day to day, you know, designing experiments and stuff and the way they write their papers.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit about writing and talk about publishing of late. We've seen, uh, um, Nina Teichel's book, The Big Fat Lie, uh, was out a couple of years now, but it's gained, I think, some new popularity, and, uh, I'm nearly done with it. I also know that there's a guy, um, I forgot his name, who's got a book out about, uh, sugar now, is the big bad guy. Although he's not the first, cause the Mythbusters, the Brennans, they had a book out 20 years ago or so. So there's, I, I think there's, there's an easy thing to want to find the bad guy. The bad guy's fat. Oh, sorry, we're wrong. Oh, well, the bad guy's sugar. Well, so this is something that you've been studying. So let's talk a little bit about fat in the diet. We'll get to sugar in a minute. So sources of fat may not all be equal. Uh, we, you know, we have animal fats. We have fruit fats, which uh, olive oil, avocados. Um, grains, which we call vegetable oil, which they aren't vegetable oil. It's corns, um, canola oil, which to me is just poison, or sunflower oil. So the challenge in the fat world is how does a person who's trying to live healthy, which is question one, what is healthy? How do we make yeah tough, tough question? How do we make a decision? How do we know which fat is a good fat?
1: Yes, good question. Do you remember that guy that was on the Tom Woods podcast? The I think he's like has a French accent. He was a doctor, and he said that uh, the definition of healthy should be from a praxeological perspective that the. the the body can do what you want it to do or something like that?
0: I do not.
1: Yeah, it was interesting because the medical definition is something like that there's no abnormal, everything's functioning normally. But by that definition, a blind man could never be healthy, even though a blind man would say, Oh, yeah, I'm healthy. Like, he's just accepted. Okay, my eyes don't work. But um and likewise, with any other kind of like permanent, you know, that person could never be under like the, you know, if you cracked open a medical textbook, the, the definition of health would be something like everything is operating in like a normal parameters. So even that is is like a strangely philosophical question, but so fats, fatty acids. How basic do we want to get here?
0: <laughs> You're talking to me. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I fancy myself moderately intelligent, but when I watch your videos, I'm like, well, hang on a minute. This is this is kind of above my head. So, just guy on the street level.
1: All right, okay. I I am pretty much mostly pro saturated fat, uh, which a lot of people are these days. Uh, I have a a few reasons. Um, One of them is really simple. Uh, Mammals. So the reason why, you know, beef fat or, you know, any of those ruminant animals like goats or sheep or whatever and dairy fats, the reason why they're high in saturated fat is because their their body produces saturated fats. And we do, too, if we eat carbohydrates. Uh, Same with pigs. Like a pig that's fed slop and a lot of carbs, it will have a lot of saturated fat in its fat depots. And it's the same thing with the human. So if you give most mammals carbohydrate, substrate, They'll use some of it for energy. They'll store it for glycogen and all the other stuff. And some of it they make fatty acids out of. And those are saturated, always. Occasionally, they'll make some uh, monounsaturated fats with it. But it's by and large, like at the 16 carbon and uh, 18 carbon uh, stearic for storage and for energy. So right off the bat, if saturated fat was bad, it would be really, really strange for the body to highly preferentially produce that de novo out of carbohydrate, um, and de novo lipogenesis. So it seems like if, you know, the fatty acids in vegetable oil were healthier, why haven't we evolved to produce those? Um, and then outside of that, uh, so animals have mostly saturated fat and plants, especially plants in cold climates or cold water fish have a lot of polyunsaturated fat. And one of the reasons is that, uh, saturated fat is more heat stable and polyunsaturated fat stays liquid at colder temperatures. So you put butter in the fridge and it's solid. If you have a bottle of flaxseed oil or something, uh, you put it in the fridge and it's just as liquid as when it's out on the counter. And so that's useful for plants in cold weather and uh, fish that are in water that is close to freezing. You know, if they, if they had saturated fat, they'd be stiff. Whereas if we had a lot of polyunsaturated fat around our organs, the visceral fat, it would oxidize depending on conditions. So that's another problem is that polyunsaturated fats, uh, one of the primary fats in plant oils, oxidize at physiological temperatures. And that's just generally a bad thing. Uh, Most people are aware of that. You don't want a lot of oxidative byproducts in the body. It gets more complicated from there. How's that?
0: That's excellent. So let's take a minute, if you can, tell me about the so-called vegetable oils. And so in And I'm just going to use this as my source of information in Nina's book. She's talking about the the, at least correlative, if not causational relationship to the invention of, say, Crisco and liquid vegetable oils and the, we'll say, decline in some areas of human health human health has decreased as the quantity of uh, trans fats and liquid fats have increased in our body. So one of the questions I'm asking you is, is that for real? Is, is she right? Is she partly right? Or is this just completely correlation and no causation?
1: I think that she's right. Um, it is, it's a good correlation. There was a paper... I've used this a lot. I forget, if the, it was in the lab of a guy named Hibbeln, Joe Hibbeln, H-I-B-B-E-L-N. So I believe his name is the last name on the paper. And the first name author, I think is Alfheim, A-L-V-H-E-I-M. Anyway, it's a study of the um, changes in consumption of a few foods, but it's focused on fatty acids from 1909. To 1999, so a century, and pretty much from the beginning of the 20th to the beginning of the 21st century, and it shows a lot of interesting things. Uh, soybean oil, and so. First of all, all the vegetable, the so-called vegetable oils, you know, these seed oils, they're pressed in industrial processes. It doesn't really matter which one you're talking about. Soybeans, safflower, uh, canola. There is a high oleic version of canola where it's kind of like a mix between vegetable oil and olive oil. I that, that would consider that less bad. Linseed. Well, linseed is flax. That has more omega-3, but it still has a lot of linoleic acid. So linoleic acid is the big fatty acid. And so this paper shows like the percentages of linoleic acid as a percentage of calories and in 1909 it was uh, negligible it was like point less than one percent and now it's over eight percent and i think the increase in soybean oil consumption was like a hundred and fifty thousand percent or something <laughs> and i mean you're starting very very low so you can really get big numbers that way and also for example over a similar time period sugar consumption has only increased 60% which is big but you know to put it in proportion people was, were still consuming a, a smaller but not negligible amount of sugar in the the turn of from the 19th to the 20th century whereas they were consuming pretty much no none of these industrial seed oils so the correlation is is extremely strong in the sense that it was really not present before things like heart disease, you know, they were, they were considered really rare. And uh, it really followed that when the seed oils came in, those things started to become more common. And outside of that, so oh, and at the same time, this same paper also shows that all the sources of saturated fat, like beef, dairy fat, you know, butter fat have gone down in consumption. And to me, that pretty much destroys the argument that saturated fat could be causing the problems because it's been going down. So if something, you know, correlation doesn't equal causation, but anti-correlation cannot possibly support causation. You know, (laughs) like if, if you're saying this thing causes this and that thing was going away, that's really, it's pretty good evidence that it didn't cause that.
0: Well, it seems at least now I, I think that maybe there's a, a two-pronged problem here or maybe even bigger because I'm old enough and, and everybody who's hearing this is old enough to remember and still even today, we're just inundated with low-fat foods. We're still It's still proudly displayed on labels of packets of food. And that's part of the problem, number one, is packets of food. But We've been told for so long, don't eat eggs, you know, meat, margarine, not butter, eat liquid oil, not solid oil. And it sort of just becomes part of of, of your culture. And it's very hard to stop thinking like that. So thinking that a, a New York strip or a sirloin or any kind of a beef fat is healthful is just counterintuitive to what we've been told. So... It's it's hard to to understand that, and and I'm grasping with that. But I will tell you, having cut out a lot of, of liquid oil, I still use extra virgin olive oil because I like the way it tastes, and I have this perhaps incorrect idea that it's a better choice of oil than the corn oil or anything else because I know how it's made. I talked to somebody who makes it. It's just you squeeze the heck out of it, and that's your extra virgin olive oil. When you get into the pumice and the light, then you're getting into uh, other processes of actual processed oil, and then you're actually no better, in my opinion, than canola oil or anything else that's that's heavily uh, chemically extracted.
1: Yeah. Well, olive oil is definitely better because it has a lower percentage. It has a lower contribution of the polyunsaturated fatty acids and a greater contribution of the monounsaturated and saturated. That, that, that's why uh, – olive oil will thicken. It won't solidify, but it will thicken in a refrigerator. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed that it gets cloudy, especially the really pure stuff, you know, really good stuff. Cause a lot of, a lot of the brands, they cut their, you know, so-called olive oil with the cheaper oils. There's been a few scandals. So, but, but real, real deal olive oil will cloudy, cloud cloudy up in a refrigerator. Um, real vegetable oils, you know, like soybean oil, corn, Stuff that's just labeled vegetable oil at the store that will not cloud up at all in a refrigerator. Um, I'm not even sure what it would do in a freezer. That'd be an interesting experiment.
0: Um, I, I think I've actually done that, not intending to, and I don't. I think it gets cold; it doesn't freeze.
1: Yeah, uh, which is good for fish, right? <laughs> so certain certain very deep deep living fish. And also, real quick, so the difference is, just so that everybody understands, so this saturated fat, right, is uh, it's called saturated because, let's see the easiest way to explain this, Um, each link in the chain of a fatty acid, so it's called a fatty acid chain, has a carbon, so it's a carbon to carbon linkage, and then each one of those carbons, carbon usually forms four bonds, and so two of the bonds are taken up by the carbons in front of it and behind it, except for the last one. And the first one but the ones in the middle of the chain and so there's two other open bonding opportunities for these carbons and when they're saturated that means that they are maximally bonded to hydrogens so that would mean there's two hydrogens on the those two free slots and monounsaturated is when one of those carbons instead of being bonded to a carbon in front of it behind it and then two hydrogens off to the sides is uh, bound to one hydrogen off the side And has a double bond, which means it shares twice as many electrons with one of its carbons, either the one in the position in front of it or behind it. And all polyunsaturated means is that more than one carbon in that fatty acid is doing that. And uh, what this does, that's what makes it oxidizable. So if you have these double bonds spaced out with a single bond, two carbons bonded singly, then doubly, then singly, then doubly, that's called conjugation. And for reasons of organic chemistry that I'll try to stay as far away from as possible, there is an ability for something called a resonance structure with the shared electrons. And all that means is that something that wants to come in and take away electrons from that that carbon that is in between a conjugated double bond can do so at a much lower energy input than if that carbon was surrounded by all saturated bonds. Uh, saturated carbons. And that's that's what allows that to happen. So the more polyunsaturated a fatty acid is, the easier it is to oxidize, so heat damage and all that stuff, uh, to the point where even just your internal body temperature is enough, especially if you have um, iron in certain places uh, to that that catalyzes this uh, reaction to abscond away with one of those uh, with electrons and a hydrogen, take away a proton and put an oxygen there. So, <laughs> was that sufficiently untechnical?
0: No, that's good. So. No, and, and I, I, I remember my tenth grade history uh, chemistry class well enough to visualize that. So, but here's the thing: I'm not entirely sure I know the answer to why is the oxidation bad.
1: Oh, good question. Oxidation is is. Uh is a normal thing that happens it's actually there's different schools of thought but a lot of people at least agree that in some situations inside of the cell it's necessary for communication uh, like something has to get oxidized and this is non-enzymatic oxidation so inside you know the mitochondria the powerhouse of the cell (laughs) There's enzymes that oxidize, you know, sugars and fats, um, and a few other energy substrates, and that's enzymatic oxidation. And it's so it's controlled by proteins, this is non enzymatic. So it's happening not as biochemistry, but as chemistry. And the main problem is it damages the molecules so that they can't necessarily do what their function is. Like if those molecules are in a membrane, where they get inserted into a membrane, these fatty acids It will change the properties of it. Uh, And also the oxidation process of fatty acids, it can continue on. So it can can go through a chain event so they can become oxidized. And then that species can go on to oxidize a neighbor and so on and so on, depending on how much um, of the original oxidation event occurs. Eventually, if you heavily oxidize fatty acids enough, they they break down into something called malondialdehyde. Which is just a really small bit of a fatty acid that's just connected to two oxygens, and that is uh, super damaging. And that's actually how uh, I think horses, like horse stress, is tested by malondialdehyde levels. So it's kind of like a a general pan toxin. It, it oxidation tends to be just bad for everything. It makes molecules not work the same way. And specifically for this uh, heart hypothesis, if you have, you know, the LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol. So specifically for for that condition, you know, it used to be cholesterol was bad, and then it was okay. We figured it out. It's LDL is bad. But what ends up happening is you've got these. So what a what LDL is is it's a lipoprotein. So it's it's actually a bunch of proteins, and they're complexed with a bunch of lipids, so fatty acids and cholesterol. That's why it's called cholesterol. It's actually mostly not cholesterol. Now, it has a membrane and there's protein on the outside and there's also fatty acids on the outside. If the fatty acids on the outside of the membrane of this LDL molecule are highly oxidized, what will happen, and this has been demonstrated experimentally, is that macrophages, which are cells that go around and look for infectious you know, things to gobble up, things that are not self, they will identify this molecule as not self-self and they will take it up, they will phagocytize it. And when they take up enough of those, the macrophage will die and become what's called a foam cell. And wherever it is in your vessels, it will uh, get sticky and stick to it. And when enough of those events happen, you get uh, a plaque. An atherosclerotic plaque, and that's what you know is the observable medical condition inside of people's vessels when they have any kind of atherosclerosis or arteriosclerosis uh, condition. So the the cause of that, experimentally, as far as we know, seems to require that the fatty acids of the LDL molecule itself are oxidized, and the only way for them to be oxidized, the only way for them to be oxidizable. Uh, non-enzymatically at physiological temperatures. So just in the body, you know, we, you can oxidize saturated fat if you want to light it on fire, but inside of your body, the only way for it to happen is if those fatty acids are polyunsaturated because of that resonant structure of uh, the conjugated double bonds allows for a low temperature oxidative attack on the alpha carbon. And that's okay. So we'll stop there.
0: (laughs) No, no, that's, but this is gold as far as I'm concerned, because now it's becoming fairly obvious that liquid oil is, you know, as far as canola and corn and possibly peanut, although I admit I use peanut oil in my deep fryer.
1: That one's in between too. That one's, so it's kind of like olive oil is the least polyunsaturated of the liquid oils. I also think macadamia nut and then peanut is next. And then the canola oil that they bred to, it's called high oleic. That one is somewhere around there. And then after that, they're all pretty much the same, like regular canola and all the seeds. Yeah. I don't buy a regular
0: canola anymore and I don't buy any of the seed oils. I'm uh, going now with, um, with, with butter. And when I do chicken, I do chicken fat and I save my bacon fat. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to make better choices because these are not things, I mean, it's a complicated explanation, but it sounds like a necessary explanation. And again, it goes to that counterintuitive. If the cow fat looks Like the stuff in my arteries, obviously, it's the cow fat that's in my arteries. But that's obviously not – it's clearly not the case. Although getting there isn't as easy as a 20-second soundbite, and it requires some thinking,
1: and we don't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, and they – you know how people are given – because the other funny thing is – um, so cholesterol is in these plaques, the atherosclerotic plaques, and there's a bunch of stuff in there, also calcium. And so for a while, and they still do this, they give people calcium blockers like they after they have heart attacks. And there's a few reasons for that, but one of the main reasons they started doing that, and they were like, oh, look, there's calcium in these plaques. So cut out calcium. <laughs> if you know anything about cell physiology, that's insane. Like calcium is, if you didn't have calcium, you would instantly be dead. <laughs> like if, you know, if you could become deficient in calcium, you know, you would not be able to move or just do anything. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing that happens medically and it's very, um, I don't like to use these kind of terms like hippy dippy stuff, but like it's an overly mechanistic or machine perspective on the body, you know, like, Oh, look, we found uh, this object at the scene of the crime. So this object must've caused it. So we'll just cut, cut out the source of that object getting to the body as if the body isn't producing, you know, it's just, it's a very, very simplistic uh, model, thinking model.
0: So it seems either correlation and causation, or just, flat out sloppy science, but that's, that's,
1: that's accusatory. And we don't want to do that yet. (laughs)
0: We'll save that for
1: next year. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about as, it's about as good thinking as that um, garbage men showing up at your house, make the garbage be there. Like, is that kind of, you know, (laughs) Uh, there's, there's a lot of funny examples, but yeah, like a kind of, if you didn't know any better, like say you got up every morning and you didn't see you didn't know this, you didn't know how the world worked, and you didn't see people take out their garbage at night, you just woke up and you saw the garbage truck coming around, and then you look in your neighborhood and you see garbage outside, you could very easily think that they're putting it there or that it's just there because you know you come up with a lot of like uh, incorrectly directional causative uh, hypotheses about that. And that's, that's, that's basically what's going on or went on like in the 60s and 70s and 80s with heart health and the fat and cholesterol hypotheses.
0: Uh, well, it certainly sounds like it from all of the, well, I'll use the word propaganda we get.
1: Yeah, it was official state science as well.
0: In fact, I think it still may be. We, we, we seem to be busting through some of that. So uh, let's talk for a second about carbs. Carbs, I, I, well, so, so carbs is a funny thing. So I know at least this much that there's there's protein, and there's fat, and pretty much everything else is a carb. Yes. So a potato, and a peanut, and a stalk of broccoli is a carb only because it's not protein, well, maybe not with a peanut, but and it's not fat. So carbs is a really, really big space. And there's probably some better than others. So how do we differentiate the good carbs from the bad carbs? And and so that's where the sugar busters things come in. So we, we have a lot of conflicts. Don't eat sugar and carrots and sweet potatoes are high in sugar, but they're also whole foods. It came out of the ground just like that. So so, you see, the challenge is well, I'm not eating added sugar, which is, you know, the sugarcane plant, which has been processed. I'm eating something that's naturally grown, but is that killing me? Is what about wheat? We <laughs> yeah, got a lot. So, uh, there's a lot going on here. Is there, in, in the research you've done, are there better carbs than others?
1: Well, I wouldn't use that term, uh, you know, like good carbs, bad carbs. I would use that with the fats, though. So I don't want to be too, you know, flimsy on on everything. <laughs> uh, I, I I do think that vegetable oils are just generally bad for humans to eat. As far as the carbs, so first of all, what makes a carbohydrate is the the, the only difference between that and a fatty acid is that it's it's a carbohydrate, so it's it's a uh, it's got oxygens and hydrogens bound to the carbons instead of just these. Um, hydrogens. So it gives it a different property. And at the end of the the little chain, they, t- they also tend to be shorter molecules uh, is something that can act as a, what's called an active group. So they're more reactive and not necessarily in a bad way, but they require less energy to start to use as energy, but they also hold less energy. So a fatty acid is, is denser. So when your cell goes to, for lack of a better term, burn it, it requires more of a startup process. It's a slower process and then you, you harvest a lot of energy out of it. Whereas a sugar molecule is smaller, it gets going sooner, but you don't get as much energy out of it. So you got your sugars, which is just one or two, I guess three sometimes, individual units together. And so that would be you know glucose is the basic ener- energy currency in the blood. That's just a, it's what's called a monomer. It's just a one, six carbon unit. And then sucrose is one glucose, and one fructose bound together. And that's what gives you sucrose. Of course, fructose is similar to glucose. It's six carbons, but the way where the oxygens are, are a little bit different. And that makes it this big boogeyman. And uh, and then you get...
0: Why is it the boogeyman?
1: It's the boogeyman because when, you know, the industrial process, I guess at some point, the technology became economically viable, um, maybe in the, I think, late 70s and through the 80s for uh, mostly corn to be digested chemically into fructose, and you know high fructose corn syrup, which is still a mixture. Uh, it's about I think high fructose corn syrup is anything from fifty five percent fructose, which would leave forty five percent for the uh, glucose, all the way up to you know some of the industrial processes. Like they try to develop processes that boost up the fructose because they want to use it for a sweetener, and fructose is sweet more sweet glucose. So the the ratio, you know, the higher you can get it, the less you have to use. I think they can get up to maybe 80%, 80, 80-20 fructose to glucose. Um, And of course, sucrose is actually a bound together molecule of fructose and glucose. So that's always 50-50. So the theory is, okay, it became economically viable to start using high fructose corn syrup, which has more fructose per glucose than regular sugar, like the kind you get out of sugar cane or sugar beets. And that does correlate fairly well with um, the rise in obesity and sugar handling diseases like diabetes, and so everybody's pointing their finger at fructose. You know, doing some experiments and showing that you know fr- fructose behaves a little bit differently than glucose, and maybe this is the cause of that. Um, so, you want to keep talking about fructose? <laughs>
0: well, I'm no, we can go on. I'm I, my, I personally have some. Uh, reservations about high fructose corn syrup, um, just because of some of the things that I've read, and I'm I avoid it in the foods that I buy, partly because sugar is in every damn thing anyway, and uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that we eat as, as 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 Americans anyway. I don't know about I've never been anywhere else. I think we probably eat far more sugar than would be. Healthy, which whatever that means, but so I'm working hard at cutting easy sugar out. So I don't buy things with high fructose corn syrup. Uh, I have one kid who, and I admit, I do like cold cereal. I was I've been eating cold cereal my whole life. My one kid still loves it. The other one, we're now we're eating. Um, eggs with cheese and bacon for breakfast instead. And I, I actually feel a little bit better and I can't get the little one quite on board with the eggs yet. She likes her, she eats, So she's eating cereal and, and a fruit. And so I was like, well, I can either decide that the fruit is just more sugar or I can say, okay, well, at least it's something that came off of a tree. It's an orange. She likes oranges. She likes apples. She likes pears. I'd rather her have the fruit, than the bottle of fruit juice, which to me is just mainlining sugar. So uh, I'm so part of the reason for these, these podcasts of, that I'm doing is in learning about diet is to have, you know, I've been in food my whole life, but I've been on the cooking side of it, and now I'm on the taking care of the people around me side of it, and I think I've been misinformed. So I'm working to correct that to some degree and make choices today to try to build habits I'm, I'm not going to fix health tomorrow, but what I really want to do is give them some—I hope—better eating habits. So when that—that that when they're adults, they're going to make better choices. Yeah. I, my oldest one, man, oh man, oh man, she's got my sweet tooth. She can eat a donut in about two bites, and it would be happy to do it. And I like donuts. I like sugar. I like cakes and pie. I like that stuff. <laughs> more than I probably should. So it's an effort for me to not do that. And so I'm, I want to know, you know, as much as my little brain can comprehend, what, what are these things doing? And that the fact that it's everywhere, yes, I recognize it's economically affordable, but that doesn't mean it's beneficial to me.
1: Right. Um, Well, first of all, you know, donuts and cakes and stuff, they have a lot of fat in them as well. Uh, so that, that's, that's like a point of contention. You know, people say, oh, fat is a problem. Sugar is a problem. And then they'll point to sweets and the same, you know, one person from the one side or the other will point to the same food and say, oh, look, (laughs) look how much sugar is in this cake.
0: I don't disagree with you, but I think th- now that opens another problem. Uh, the homemade cake, and I only use butter for my cakes because margarine is just, is just, you know, damn Napoleon. Oh yeah. But there are people who are going to go buy a butter flavored Crisco and just, it's like, oh my God, have some trans transat, will ya? Yeah. So if, if you're making your cake with butter, f- okay, at least it's marginally better and you can actually cut some of the sugar out. It doesn't need all two cups. It really doesn't. But if you're buying the cake at the grocery store, well, they didn't make it. They got it in frozen from some big commissary kitchen, and you can be sure they're not using butter. It's you know, maybe it's palm oil and so there's a lot of issues about that. I think palm oil is probably better than hydrogenated whatever soybean oil whatever it is to make them crisco out of these this this week but there's also just the laundry list of chemicals you can't say pronounce or pick that's on that on that ingredient list that's six inches long of just you may i need a degree like yours to know what the hell i'm eating
1: right all right let's go back to carbs first of all just to round out carbs So sugars are these simple molecules. They're the things that taste sweet. And um, then then you have starches. That's the two main classes. There's a few others, but in terms of human nutrition, the two main classes are sugars and starches. Starches are mostly just glucose molecules uh, linked together in a very, very long chain, like hundreds, even thousands. And it's not sweet, um, or at least it's, you know, it's marginally sweet because uh, you don't break down these glucose molecules into monomers in your mouth when you're, when you're chewing a starch, you know, maybe a a few glucose, single pieces of glucose will break free. And so sometimes, you know, a, a starch will have a little bit of sweetness to it. But for the most part, the ability to taste sweet in your mouth, it can't detect, you know, these big long chains of glucose molecules as sweet it it detects them as these other flavors you know this whatever the starchy flavor is in the food that you're eating and of course there's all the other food molecules in there that are causing flavors as well at the same time and then those get broken down into just simple glucose molecules and absorbed the same way as any other sugar would and paradoxically they will actually raise your blood sugar faster than sugar because, well, they'll, they'll raise, when people say blood sugar, they mean blood glucose. And so since starch is 100% glucose, it's just all glucose. Now, occasionally there'll be something else thrown in there, but normal starches are all glucose, whereas sugars are usually 50% or less glucose. Uh, you're getting more glucose. It digests a little bit slower, but that's made up for the doubling of the glucose So on the glycemic index, something like white bread or pasta, uh, I'm not sure about potatoes, but those kinds of things are actually more or higher on the glycemic index than candy. Uh, Because the fructose from the sugars gets taken up quicker, it gets taken up by the liver in a different process that isn't insulin dependent. And so it clears the blood quicker. And it's also not in the glucose form anyway. So if you were to just test your blood glucose, it doesn't pick up the fructose. Now some of the fructose does get converted to glucose, but that's getting into more complicated physiology. And that brings up an interesting point, which is at the turn of the 20th, century from the 19th to the 20th before insulin was discovered or the process to make large enough quantities of insulin for uh, therapy for diabetics and you know back then pretty much all the diabetics were the type 1 diabetics the kind whose um, insulin producing cells were killed by what appears to be an autoimmune response that just targets their their cells for destruction the, the beta cells of the pancreas. And they can't produce their own insulin, so uh, insulin is required to drive glucose into the cells so that you can use it. So they can consume a bunch of glucose, they can digest it. It's in the bloodstream. A ton mm-hmm. of it is in the bloodstream, but hardly any of it's getting into the cells, and so their cells are starved. But they have all of this energy in their blood. It's kind of this paradox. It also makes them pee a lot because uh, that gets um, it overwhelms the filtering process of the of the kidneys, and so a lot of that glucose gets put into the urine and that pulls water with it through osmosis, and that makes people pee more. So just a whole bad situation. They discovered insulin, and then that was pretty much the solution for that. But before that, the treatment was sugar and things with a lot of fructose. And the reason why is because fructose is not insulin-mediated in uptake into the cells the same way as glucose. So actually, for a type 1 diabetic, it's a little bit different for a type 2, but for a type 1 diabetic, they would do better, you know, say they didn't have their insulin or something, or they, they were on an island. They would survive better with, you know, fruit and like table sugar and candy and stuff like that than they would with uh, bread and potatoes and stuff like that. Which I thought was very interesting because you know there seems to be this idea like sugar causes diabetes, but it was actually a treatment. Like doctors gave patient's sugar (laughs) to to good effect. I mean, it wasn't a total reversal of the symptoms, but they would have more energy. They would pee less. You know, they wouldn't be ravenous all the time as much as when they were trying to eat a normal diet that was higher in glucose and lower in fructose.
0: I I, I knew a fellow when I was in high school, well, in junior high, that um, um, he was a type one diabetic and he ended up dying at 20, very young It was, oh my, it was overwhelmingly sad. It was un, just unbearable, but he was like the first friend I made in my new town. And then he was a type one diabetic and you had to have like a, something candy bar or something around just in case Jimmy was going to get into a, a seizure. Something. this is, this is how you fix him.
1: Yes. So, yeah. So that wouldn't work if it was like a slice of bread. So that's why that is, you know, uh, It's not just the sugar per se. It's, well, it is the sugar in the sense of sugar as a mixture of fructose and glucose, but it's just carbohydrates per se would not bring somebody out of a hypoglycemic shock if they were an insulin dependent diabetic, but uh, fructose may, depending on how advanced they're, you know, they get at a certain point. The only thing that could help is a direct blood infusion of uh, insulin. I think along with sugar and, and uh, sodium to help.
0: Let's continue on the sugar thing, because uh, you've got those two videos I watched. So one of the things that has come up in and, and just some of the reading that I've been doing is this idea of insulin resistance. So, so, and so first of all, is it bad? And two, is, is so we've talked a little bit about sugar in the standard American diet, um, certainly as empty calories. It's not good because you're not getting any nutrition out of it. But in, in, I'm going to ask a really broad question, which might technically be incorrect, but is sugar responsible for, or what part does it play in insulin resistance? And what the heck is insulin resistance?
1: The first question, is insulin resistance bad? That is very difficult to answer. The inability to use sugar in your cells is definitely bad. That's what you know a type one diabetic experience is. At a very basic level, it's contrary to life or health at all. Right. So you want to be able to use these energy molecules, you know, that that we're all familiar with as foods in your cells for energy. So to the extent that insulin signaling is required for that. And there's a little bit of a question as to whether if your cells are in a really healthy state, they don't require as much insulin signaling as otherwise. That's a little esoteric, but for the most part, yes, insulin resistance is bad. And what insulin resistance is, is you have insulin in your blood, but it's not decreasing your blood glucose it's not driving the glucose in your blood into your cells for use and the reason why is because your cells at an individual level and different cells have different reactions to insulin some are more naturally more insulin sensitive than others and they have different thresholds like the liver will not take up glucose from insulin at lower levels but it'll take it up at higher levels because it doesn't want to compete with the rest of the body so normally there's varying levels of sensitivity depending on which tissue in your body you're talking about But somebody who is called an insulin resistant or a type 2 diabetic, they have a situation where their pancreas is, as far as we can observe, fine. They've got the beta cells that produce insulin and they've got the alpha cells that produce glucagon. Both of those work normally. And in response to their blood glucose from a meal going up, their insulin, their pancreas will produce insulin. The problem is that doesn't bring the, the blood glucose down. And uh, so there's, you have insulin, and it's not doing its job. And on a really close to the cell level, you know, people do these experiments saying, oh, look, you know, it, it uh, can't bind to the insulin receptor, or it's, it, it tries to, it binds to the insulin receptor, but the downstream signaling pathways, you know, all this molecular, like everything has a an abbreviation, like it's alphabet soup. Stuff like this molecule signals this one and it has this cascade effect. Very, very complicated uh, and really kind of beside the point, medically speaking. It's something in that chain of events that insulin uh, comes in contact with a cell. That cell ends up taking up and using more glucose, that gets messed up. So, so I gave that one talk in 2016 about being wary of people's obsession with becoming a fat burner. That that was somehow like the superior, you know, superior state of man, ascendant state, versus being, you know, a lowly carb burner, so <laughs> a plebeian carb burner. And you know, people thought it was interesting or whatever. But I heard uh, this phrase bandied about all over the place, as if it was self-evident, which is that sugar causes insulin resistance. It's just You know, as if like, you know, gravity causes things to fall out of the earth. And uh, I thought about it, and it doesn't make any sense when you really, really get to the molecular physiology of it. Because all sugar is now, if we're talking about table sugar, fructose, and glucose. So, talking about glucose, which would be in sugars and also the primary or total constituent of starches, that stimulates the pancreas to produce insulin, and then it gets taken up. And the more glucose there is, the more your cells will produce insulin and also be sensitive to that insulin. So not only does the the body is constantly monitoring the situation. So uh, one of the things that organisms tend to do, and this is seen all the way from bacteria all the way up to us, is when there's a substrate available in excess, the body tends to react by turning up the production of enzymes that use that substrate and turning down the production of enzymes that use other substrates that are not in excess or not present for obvious biologically economic reasons, right? Sort of like if you had a factory and there's two materials that you could use for your industrial process and they require different tooling of the factory and there's just a glut on the market of the one material, you would tool your factory to use that material and detool it to use the other material and if the situation changed you would change you know when it becomes economically viable so cells do the same thing organisms do the same thing um, and fructose it doesn't really interact with the insulin system the same way but it does stimulate the use of sugars in the cell and that in and of itself interacts with the insulin system so the point is there's really no physical mechanism where at where uh, from the consumption right fr- from your mouth through in your gut, the absorption gets into the blood, gets into your cells, goes in, you know, whether it's in the liver, the muscle, anywhere. There's really no physical basis for where in that process those sugar molecules or those carbohydrates damage your body's ability to sense insulin and to respond to it with the physiological responses. That's like a, a the broad way of explaining, you know, I, I went into a lot of detail in that talk, the 2017 AHS talk, because there's certain claims, like it does this, it does that. And there's just a lot of weird wordplay, like they'll say, the problem is that when you're insulin resistant, you can't use, you know, you can't take up like I said before, the, the cells can't take up glucose because they're not responding to the signal from insulin that would tell them to take up glucose. But then on the other hand, they say, and then the glucose, you know, goes into your fat cells and becomes fat, which, you know, is, is talking across purposes because that's an insulin dependent reaction. So clearly if your cells, whether they're fat cells or any other cells are taking up glucose and in this case, producing fatty acids and then eventually triglycerides for storage, and that's what becomes, you know, Body fat. That's an insulin dependent process. So there's a few kind of word tricks that don't logically make sense in the story and there's no smoking gun of oh look uh in the body you know fructose or whatever has this interaction with say the insulin receptor that makes it not work right there's just nothing like that the only thing there is is that those molecules stimulate the insulin system to work more there is the one argument that fructose gets taken up by the liver preferentially and if certain things happen you can end up with the liver storing some of that fructose it into fatty acids and so people people say oh and then you get fatty liver and fatty liver does mess up metabolically you know the ability to interact with the insulin system in certain ways but that's really not the fatty acids that end up getting stored in the liver are mostly dietary fat they're not uh, it, 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 the same thing with adipose as well if you like um people have done experiments by uh putting isotopes on the carbons of either dietary fat or carbohydrates and following where those things go in people and most of the fat that becomes body fat is not fat made from what's called de novo lipogenesis, uh, which can be produced from carbohydrates, but just the dietary fatty acids themselves getting ushered into your fat cells and becoming your body fat. So that's my main counter to to the claim. And then there's all of these you know, alternative views of what may or may not be happening. And also, there's a there's a very good reason for people to think that, you know, quote, sugar causes insulin resistance, unquote. Uh, and this, the reason is that uh, sugar and any kind of carbohydrate, but specifically sugar exposes uh, insulin resistance, in the sense that, like, if you have a healthy young person, and you give them sugar, you know, sometimes they might get hyper or something, but they don't get fat, you know, a lot of uh, somebody with a healthy metabolism, but somebody that does not have a healthy metabolism, if they eat a lot of sugar, they'll gain weight. And if they measure their blood sugar, it will go up and it'll stay up for a while. And there's a big temptation to say that the sugar is causing that. But that's kind of like saying, I don't know, like if you went to the gym or something, and uh, you, you tried to lift a heavy weight, and you couldn't lift it that like the weight was causing you to be weak, but it's really just that like you're not prepared. So, so people that have a compromised insulin system will not be able to metabolize uh, carbohydrates of any sort as well as people that don't. And they might not realize they have a compromised insulin system until they, you know, they might change their diet or, you know, as people get older, their metabolism tends to slow down anyway. And so an amount of sugar that they could have handled before will not be handleable in the same way. They'll start to gain weight. They might start to have sugar handling problems. You know, their doctor, Oh, it looks like you, might be becoming pre-diabetic based on your fasting blood glucose from this visit and they'll blame the sugar but it could just as easily be that they are causing cellular damage from as we discussed before something like polyunsaturated fatty acids which do have a physical basis of several ways that they can get in the way both instantaneously and chronically over time through damaging you know cell machinery to use uh, sugars as normal so my alternative theory is that you know just as a as a society, the amount of these reactive, what I would call anti-metabolic, right, plant fats—fats fats, fats that plants make—not warm-blooded animals. Warm-blooded animals do not make these fats, uh, and I think that there's a good reason. And the reason is that they uh, they junk up the works. And you know, you've got people are eating sugar; they're getting older; they're storing these polyunsaturated fatty acids. They they use them sometimes for energy. Some of them break down oxidatively and cause cellular damage. Over time, you get this, you know, pre-diabetic, diabetic. Situation, and then people blame the sugar, and maybe that's just a bystander in the whole the whole thing. Now, if you cut out the sugar, you will notice that a lot of the symptoms go away, right? Like if you drastically cut your carbs, yeah, your blood sugar will go down, your fasting blood sugar will go down, but you're not making your insulin signaling better. You're just taking away the need for it. So you're you're taking away the job that the insulin system wasn't doing that well, and now the insulin system doesn't have to work very hard. All the symptoms are gone, but you didn't really address the issue. You just you know, kind of like you know the. The, um, there's the the old school allergy reaction is oh avoid that thing and then there's that new school where they say oh we, you know you go to a, an al what are they call like an allergenist and you might get like little pricks of something that makes you allergic and over time that can desensitize you to it so it's that kind of a philosophy where you know and and this is just an idea you know I, I am slightly agnostic on it but it seems to me like the people that respond to I was eating carbohydrates or I was eating sugars I started having these blood sugar you know glucose handling disorder symptoms I cut out the sugars, they went away. It's kind of like that idea, like, oh, I was allergic to, you know, strawberries. I cut them out. <laughs> I don't have the problem anymore. Well, it might be possible that there's just something there that could be desensitized. It, actually, I'm kind of torturing this analogy. <laughs> I think you get the idea. Yes,
0: yes, I do. You you sort of kind of talked about this, and I want to see if I can tease out a little bit different of an answer. Uh, assuming that cells, for the most part, from person to person, function the same. Now, obviously, it's there will be people for whom that is not the case. Um, a celiac disease person um, has a very real issue with with the gluten and, the, and whatever the source of gluten is, um, generally wheat, but it's in a few other things. So excluding people with very real issues, the strawberry allergy person, does one person on the keto diet. Have the same excellent waste loss results as another, or in, is that a cell thing, or does can a biochemist dare tease out a panacea for everybody about good eating? Is that just too much to ask?
1: Uh it could be. So, just to be clear, I was in the low carb camp. Like when I started graduate school, and so from I'm going to say 2008 until. S- 2000, either late 2011 or into 2012, you know, so probably around four years, I was on some version of a low carbohydrate diet. And for most of that time, it was that crazy raw meat diet, which I say crazy, I mean, maybe it's not crazy I don't know it uh it certainly gave people pause uh it was after a while you get tired of talking about it but I'd have like a container for lunch of like raw meat and anybody that sees that has to ask you about it very annoying um (laughs) but anyway so that's the kind of stuff I was doing so I believed in it you know and I believed in vegetarianism and veganism as well so I'm very familiar with oh this is the answer this is the answer and although on a cellular level most people's cells do work the same I am very sympathetic to the idea that different, you know, ethnicities, like for an extreme, you know, like uh, somebody in the South Pacific that eats like, just coconuts and like yams or something versus an Eskimo that probably ate like that raw meat diet, like I had a few other things, there's probably some real differences. And I think there's, you know, a decent amount of genetic mixed with real physiological testing that has shown that. So there's, pr- there's probably different macronutrient ratios that would be ideal for different people based on things like their ethnic backgrounds, or, you know, somebody just might have a crazy genetic mutation, you know, people, there's people that can't handle protein very well, because their uh, urea, the the, pro- the the process to deal with the toxic ammonia that gets uh, released sometimes when you metabolize protein, some people that gets messed up. And if they eat a really high protein diet, they can just die. So that's you know. So there's people with rare things, and I, so I think all that is very real. But you'll see, and that's really the problem with diet gurus is there's just a big incentive for you know, say somebody who's like 30 years old or under, okay, and they look really good, but you know they might look good on any diet, and you know they work out, they're uh, you know just personally attractive, they speak well. And they're on this diet and they say oh it's great this will work for everybody it's that's really not you know somebody you know who cares what they have to say i would take much more seriously somebody who is like 55 and was fat you know and like lost a bunch of weight but even that person that's just that one person and yeah keto undeniably like the vast majority now there are some people that it does not work for like i have met you know in this um process of like giving talks and them ending up on the internet and stuff I have been contacted by plenty of people that did not get good results on weight loss, or they felt like crap, or they lost weight and then gained it back, or they lost weight, but they felt like crap even though they had lost weight. All, all of those different variations. You know, people that it just the, the panacea that they were looking for was not there for them on a low carb or keto diet. Or, and what's really common is that that happens maybe after two or three years, you know, something burns out for them. So given that, I, I'm not too much of a fan of extreme diets. I think that you know if somebody wants to experiment with something like that, you know, you can lose weight that way. You can lose weight on a low fat diet as well. You have to go pretty low in fat there's kind of these magic um, ratios. I think for carbs, it's maybe if you get carbs to like under 100 grams a day, maybe less than 30% of your calories total, you you get some pretty good effects. And then of course, you know, the more you go, the faster that'll happen. For fat, you really have to get like below 10% of your calories to get really, really rapid weight loss. But you will actually get that that's been shown clinically in, you know, scientific studies over and over again, is that when you hit the fat percentage that low, you will get you, Will trigger a lot of weight loss, similar to when you have a very low carb diet. So they're, they're, they are similar.
0: Well, uh, my first question is: Okay, fine, you've lost a lot of weight, but what what harm have and what harm have you caused your overall general health? You've lost weight at what expense? And I, obviously, that is another that's individually answered. Because, again, not everyone's going to be the same, but suddenly I'm seeing this weight loss as not net neutral, that the loss of weight might come at a greater expense to something that I can't see and not necessarily measure, and it doesn't impact my day-to-day feeling. If I feel, yeah, my back doesn't hurt, my joints are good, I feel good, that Generally, I think we are in tune with our bodies, but there's certainly lots of things that could be going wrong that I don't perceive. And I I mean, this is, you know, everybody who ever had cancer, this isn't the thing that I'm asking you to answer. This is just an observation that weight loss at the expense of, say, muscle tissue density or bone density, that sounds like it's probably a bad choice.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, the question would be if what you're doing is healthy, why would those metrics, which are pretty universally associated with health, you know, like bone density and muscle, muscle density and the the health of muscle fibers, why would they be going down? That's a bad sign.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, so this is, this is a big if, but do we dare suggest an eating regimen that might be Plautus's moderation in all things?
1: Well, not, not all things, not moderation in all things. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't believe in moderation in like the seed oils, you know, like we could just cut those out. <laughs> it seems to me at
0: least that connecting the variety of the spice of life, so some carbs, some fat, some bacon, some butter, uh, have the sprinkles on the donut.
1: Yeah, to the extent that you can. I mean, if you go out to eat at a restaurant or something, you know, whatever i so excluding
0: those excluding the people we sort of excluded before the celiac the uh, allergic to things it sounds like
1: a and i also and this is a really real point i actually think that stress like people that stress about their diet because i've been like i said i got into this early college so i was like 19 uh i'm 34 now so i've been like on the internet about this and watching people, people age and get messed up worrying about their diet, I think more than eating a crappy diet. Now, you know, some people, maybe if they're particularly sensitive to something, they could mess themselves up on a crappy diet more. But like the average person should not, like stress is just as bad as bad diet. So that that's another reason that I don't recommend extreme diets for everybody, or even just as like a first you know, first stab at something because it is easier to stick on an extreme diet in a certain kind of way, right? Because you really feel like you're doing something and it's clear what you have to do. The rules are clear. And, uh, the fact that it's difficult kind of makes it feel more noble, but it's not, you know, that maybe it's more noble to do something that is more challenging because it requires moderation. It requires more nuance so I do have – I have recommendations of negatives in the sense of cutting things out. So we talked about the vegetable oil. Excellent point.
0: So that's – yes, the seed oils, let's eliminate those.
1: There's a few other things that I I, actually, I talk about that not many people do. One of them, uh, you talked about weird ingredients and in processed foods. One that a lot of people don't talk about are the – Gums, yeah. There's like xanthan, and I forget them all, but yeah, there's like a dozen of them, and really half a dozen of them that are common. And the one that's really common, the agar one, that's usually listed as carrageenan. You know, you won't. A lot of people won't notice acutely a problem from that. Some people will, but those things are they can be really bad um, if they get. So if you've, ever, you've heard of leaky gut, like that's one of the things that celiac people can develop. So if if those molecules pass. Into your system through your gut, so they don't get expelled and they don't get uh, broken down. And really, they don't get broken down very much. So we don't really have good enzymes for breaking those down because they're not a natural human food uh, in our history. They are very allergenic. Actually, if you if you just uh, go to you know Google Scholar or PubMed or whatever and type in carrageenan, what you'll get is a bunch of studies of anti-inflammatory drugs. And what the carrageenan is is the uh, the inflammatory Molecule that they use, you know, they inject a, mu- a mouse with it. They inject it into a mouse or a rat or something, uh, like into their paw, to cause an inflammatory event, and then they'll test a the drug, you know, to see if it s- stops, you know, reduces the inflammation or cuts it out entirely. So those things are not benign, even though the government has basically, you know, put them in a category of total benign. Uh, so I try to avoid those gums, you know, like if you look on, I mean, everything from, you know, like if uh, like cottage cheese, I think there's a brand called Daisy, that's just, you know, dairy, and that's it. And a lot of a lot of other brands, you know, they should have, because, you know, it makes things um, smoother. It allows things to stay, to keep a pleasant consistency on the shelf longer. Um, so little things like that. Let's see. So And then getting into positives. So there's some things I recommend that people don't like to try, but I always evangelize for eating liver. Hmm. Uh, h- how, how much do you eat liver?
0: Well, I don't eat it anymore because nobody in my house, well, my children... <laughs> Wouldn't even consider it. Um I'm almost you gotta hide it. Convinced my wife would never try it. Uh it is un- well one, if you don't if you don't know what it is, it doesn't really smell appetizing until and to me I like it, but it, it has a very powerful unappetizing odor and I just it's I don't even try. <laughs> it's just wife it, I know it's a fight and i'm going to pick my battles and that's not going to be one of them
1: well okay first of all and actually i've recorded footage for this um of me cooking liver i have a specific method that i've developed that i think is the most palatable for a normal person such that a lot of people i've given this to you know they get that kind of surprised look you know oh this isn't that bad that kind of thing like it's it's so and my method is to pat it dry with paper towel so you have you know a package of liver usually in some kind of, you know, like a meat plastic, you know, shrink-wrapped thing. Cut it open, drain as much of the fluid as you can into the sink, and then lay it across paper towels. Usually you have to put maybe three ply down. Uh, Lay lay liver strips across it and then cover that on top and, you know, let it kind of just dry for a half an hour or something. Get a pan going with whatever oil you're going to use, butter. I cook with coconut oil a lot, or sometimes I'll do 50-50 coconut oil and butter. Um, get that nice and hot, ready to sear. Because what what you're going to do is you're going to take that padded liver that doesn't have a ton of moisture on the outside and give it a nice sear and then, uh, you know, flip it over and get it. It cooks through pretty quickly. So you really just want to get like a nice crust on the outside and then you're done. And you can cut that up into pieces and just, you know, eat it with, you know, whatever, like, What you would use meat for i like to put it on pizza or sometimes i'll make just a can of soup and i'll just dump a handful of liver pieces in there i'm telling you you will not notice it as a bad thing it also does not smell uh the other trick is you cook it right away so the things that make liver objectionable are um because liver has a lot of liver is the most important part of the body metabolically speaking i mean you know the brain is great and everything uh it, it does so many things that it has a ton of chemicals in it. It has, you know, products that it makes, products that it takes up and breaks down, transports, all this stuff. And a lot of those things break down. So the animal's dead. Its liver isn't working anymore. sitting in refrigeration the longer it does that these chemicals break down and that's what makes you know just like fish what what makes the fishy smell is the the proteins breaking down in the fish they become free amino acids and they stink Um, there's all kinds of you know thiols and just a laundry list of uh, metabolic byproducts and chemicals in the liver they break down so you want to cook it right away Uh, pat it dry sear it and the thing is liver is the most nutritious food I highly recommend it. Uh, it's got a ton of vitamin A, It's good for your skin. Um, it's good for your digestion, basically good for everything. So not a lot of people take me up on it, but I am a liver evangelist. <laughs> well,
0: that's an interesting cause, and I would be interested to see your banner. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah, Now that could be a Hannibal Lecter because he, you know, liver with fava beans, right? Is that the line?
0: <laughs> yes, and make that funny
1: noise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and okay. So, and then other basic tips uh, protein, right? So, people, you know, that's kind of a fad or it's in the consciousness, right? That people should be eating protein. Um, I think you should try to get at least 100 grams of protein a day. What does that,
0: Not neither one has a scale. I have a scale, but what does 100 grams of protein look like? How would you know if you saw it
1: okay so like one meal with like a serving of meat might get you a quarter of that might get you like 25 grams if it's like a, a decent serving of meat uh depending on what it is oh so are you saying a usda serving of four ounces of beef is 25 grams? oh no that that's that's a little like a bigger than that okay uh i, I would I, I would have to look at it i don't really count uh, when I'm eating too much, I like one, one easy way to visualize it is, um, you know, people will take protein powders, like whey protein or different types of protein, and they'll come with a scooper. Uh, those scoops are usually, they're, they're pretty universally used in all the different products. Those have about like usually 15 to 20 grams of protein in them. So it's like maybe, I don't know how big those are, like three tablespoons or something. Uh, but, but that's pure protein. Um, yeah, you just gotta, you just gotta pop it into like chronometer or something. Do you know that website? I do not. Oh, it's great. I think you can use it for free. You just put in foods and they have a lot of commercial foods as well. So like brand names of whatever, and you put it in there and it tells you what the nutrient composition is and you can chart your, you know, daily consumption and everything. If you want to try to go for a certain macronutrient or even micronutrients like vitamins and minerals goal. I, I I like the the observation
0: of don't go to extremes, and I will admit, for my own self, I've been I've been kind of getting a little bit extreme. I know enough about me to know that that's really not sustainable. I, I just want to be more aware of what it is that I'm bringing into the house, and being more aware of what it is that all of us, just for a general wellness, whatever that means well, we can say reduced lack of disease, which is sort of a dumb thing to say, but because the word structure, just being more aware of trying to eat foods that are closer to how they were in nature. So, you know, just fewer red dye number 40s and all the other just junk that's in so much of the stuff, trying to at least reduce. I don't think minimize is possible. I don't, You know, I would need 30 acres and more time to completely be off the food grid. And that's not really reasonable because I don't know where my kids are going to live. And if they move to a city, well, I've, I've, I've empowered them with nothing.
1: Right. I don't think you really have to do that. That's kind of what I'm interested in now is like, you know, I went through the process of being obsessed with diets. Like, oh, I have to have this type of this or else I won't be healthy, you know. Like when I when I was consuming a lot of unpasteurized dairy, I was like, Okay, this is really the secret here. It's like
0: <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I don't know that there
0: is just a secret. There may be a secret for a person and if it works great for their person, whether it's I know that the no, oh, I've forgotten what the book was, but there's there's a, a group of people in California who are very much into the raw meat diet, the raw chicken and raw You know what? If they're healthy and they're happy, well, I don't really have anything to say about that. But that's not a choice for me. That's not something I'm interested in just because I'm not interested in that. doesn't doesn't hold an appeal. Um, What holds an appeal is something that resembles, A, it's really got to be doable, something we can actually achieve with Two kids and sports, and a wife who works late some nights, and just you know, we got we got stuff happening, and it needs to be something that we can do and succeed at, and everyone will, you know, you know what, the kids don't always get the meal they want every night of the week, but they're going to get more often than not something they'd be willing to eat, but it's just because would because they're kids, <laughs> so just they're. just, they're, they're fickle kids, which drives me, the chef crazy, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm, I just, you know, I've, I've been eliminating a lot of stuff on purpose because I'm pretty sure if I can't say it, can't pick it, I can't pronounce it. I probably don't want to eat it anyway. I, I want more knowledge, more information. And so do, could we, it's a horrible, it's, it's what a setup of a line that is safe to say, probably not. Um, but could we could we reasonably conclude that cutting back on added sugars, because it's in every damn thing there is, cutting back on processed refined foods is a good step to take in better health anyway?
1: Yes. Assuming that one replaces that with, you know, some kind of normal like if you cut out processed foods and you just eat, I don't know, celery or something. <laughs> no, fair point. So instead
0: of buying them, so who doesn't like cookies? Christmas time is coming up. What a horrible thing to say we can't have Christmas treats. Well, of course we have Christmas treats, but we're going to make them. So my example is one of my my daughter's classes having a gift exchange, and one of the girls loves marshmallows. Well, I'm not buying a bag of marshmallows to give to this girl as a gift. I mean, come on, we're going to make them. And so we did. So we made them.
1: Oh, nice. Can Can you get them in that shape?
0: You can't, they, my wife complained, we don't have the same tooth Well, that's because I don't have the $400,000 worth of machinery. Um, I cut them, I put them in a sheet pan and I cut them into squares and I did the little, you know, powdered sugar slash cornstarch mix so they don't stick, but they taste great because I use really good quality vanilla and the rest is just uh, honey and sugar and water and boil it and add it to the gelatin and beat the snot out of it for 10 minutes and you got marshmallows. So is it, it's, pretty much pure sugar. But at least I had some control of it. I didn't pick the sugarcane. I didn't process it and dry it and mill it and all the other junk. But it's not this longer list of crap where I feel like the bag for the marshmallows is probably better to eat than the stuff inside.
1: <laughs> right, right. Actually, there's a, there's a point about cookies and stuff, because this is a libertarian show, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> so – I keep talking about the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, but that's, you know, libertarians, libertarians will know uh, the importance of, you know, that's like a little bit of coded language for, you know, the progressive era entering. So another thing that happened is actually the, uh, you know, store bought cookies and and cakes and stuff. And I think even big brands, um, you know, National Biscuit before, you know, they shortened it to Nabisco, they uh, used a lot of coconut oil in their, you know quote, processed, unquote, foods. And what happened was um, the farmers <laughs> entered the farm lobby. They wanted to get subsidies so that they could grow these big cash crops like soybeans and safflower and all the other things that make the vegetable oils. And so they did. So those those crops are all subsidized. And that is one of the big reasons why those oils are what the Companies that then make the processed foods with them that have fats in them, like cookies and cakes and salad dressing. Although salad dressing would be a little tough because it has to stay liquid. So that would have to be something like an olive oil. But still, that's not used because it's expensive. Everybody would rather have an off-the-shelf salad dressing that says it's olive oil. I mean, a lot of them say olive oil. But if you look, yeah, it's it's soybean oil. And then four ingredients later, it's olive oil. So it's like olive oil flavored. <laughs> um. So, so, yeah, so that's a, that's an example and a, a huge example, because I think uh, without that push, th- that revolution wouldn't have happened because, you know, the same way with sugar beets uh, being, you know, tariffs and whatnot, protecting the, the domestic farmers from sugarcane, uh, international sugarcane production, these um, seed growers that would then use the industrial processes to extrude the oils they they could never really get off the ground, uh, because that's an expensive process. And to just totally, you know, they had to create all new factories to make that process. So it was not really like a natural thing, like what you said about olive oil. I mean, they were pressing olive oil when, you know, Socrates was lecturing. Uh, you just, you can do it with a couple of stones. Um, you cannot do that with soybean and safflower and flax seeds and all this crap. You have to have High temperature, high pressure processes. You need steel and all this stuff. So those, um, those the subsidies to the crops, and I'm not sure what the tariff situation is. But I mean, dollars to donuts says that there's some kind of tariff on, <laughs> or or at least when when these people were belly aching about it, that you know, foreign coconut oil and, and the different oil tropical oils were uh, were being tariffed to help this process.
0: Well, Nina also, Nina writes that. I don't know, so you're 34, well, you may have been too young to remember, but when you went to the movie theaters, the ushers would hand out pamphlets saying that your popcorn has been cooked probably in palm kernel oil, and it's poison, and you shouldn't eat it. Um, soybeans put a huge, huge lobbying effort into people not using palm oil.
1: Yeah, I remember they called it, it was, wasn't that like the anti-tropical oils thing? That- yes. Yeah, I do remember that. I was very young,
0: and I mean, they hit them hard, and they're come back a little bit. But soy, you know, that's another show. But that's that's soy is lots of reasons to not eat that.
1: Oh yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's a big one. I mean, the, the the oils are bad. The proteins, well, the the proteins kind of the best part about it, as far as vegetable protein goes. Which is generally like a lower quality for human nutrition than animal protein. Soy is okay, Uh, but it's not—it's not great, and the things that come along with it, right—the the the phytoestrogens, you know, people are all worried about that, and probably for good reason.
0: Alrighty, let's wind it up here, Kyle. I appreciate your time. This is
1: double what I said we'd do. All right. Well, I am. Thank you for having me on ostensibly episode 14 i enjoyed it my pleasure me too
0: i learned more than i expected to so that's good all right well have a fabulous evening
1: yeah have a nice uh holiday and i'll be looking forward to the episode hopefully everybody you know our buddies in the tom woods elite listen to it
0: so well once again thank you very much and i've got the youtube channel and i'll put a link to that and let's see all right have a good night All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. You can get all of the show notes information and Kyle's YouTube channel at culinarylibertarian.com slash 14. Have a very Merry Christmas and a good week, and I'll see you next week. Folks, anytime is a good time for the gift of wine. Visit my affiliates at culinarylibertarian.com slash wine for wine subscriptions for yourself, for your employees, or for your clients. And also check out some of the other affiliates for wine cellar needs and some charcuterie. com slash wine. Went about as well as I could have expected. and Ah. And no, I mean, I, I really, I, I, I guess you I should have... Sort of known, you would have more information than, than.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't take any notes. You know, I just figured. Well, that's good. I'm looking at it's an
0: hour and forty three in, so I'm thinking this is going to be. <laughs> this might be a two episode. Um, well, well, we'll have to see how much gets cut out because we gabbed a lot. Um, ba- based on your two videos, you did need to take notes. You're obviously extraordinarily well informed, far far beyond the likes of people like me and probably 99.5% of Tom's audience, although there are some incredibly smart people in the elite.
1: Yes. And people that disagree with me on these uh, questions, which I welcome. Uh, I, you know, like I said, I'm agnostic. I'm not emotional about this. Um, I just, you know, I've been through believing wholeheartedly in diets, extreme diets. That did not serve me well it, you know, dominated my life. I don't think it was mentally healthy for me. I don't think it's mentally healthy for many people or perhaps anybody. And, uh, and I don't really think the results are that great. You know, I think that, you know, you don't have to cut out all fat. You don't have to cut out all carbs or all sugar. Uh, you can try tweaking things. You can try different experiments. If it's not working for you, don't let people on the internet tell you it's because you're not doing it right, <laughs> you know. Don't if you feel like crap or your hair is falling out or something. You know, don't let people convince you that you're detoxing.
0: Hmm. Uh, I talked to um, he's not uh, he's a libertarian, but he's not Tom Woodshow elite is now and has been on keto for three or four years. Uh, he went from 500 pounds and numerous diseases to low 300s. And, and a lot of his diseases have gone away. Obviously, he's made a good choice for himself. He looks better. He feels better. He's not taking any more medications. So for him, that's spectacular. What a great thing. What a wonderful, su- wonderful success story for him. Wonderful. Excellent. Good for him. He's, I mean, that's, that's great. Um, I, I, I can't tell him he's wrong. I'm not going to tell him he's wrong because he's 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 living the example of his health has improved. His quality of life has improved. So where's the complaint?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, that, so I would never target somebody like that for like, you know, some sort of a conversion. Like, well, actually, do you know that <laughs> on a cellular level, like that, that would be ridiculous.
0: Oh, well, a lot. I mean, he... He has read and read and read and read. I mean, he is now he's he's not a scientist, but he is extraordinarily well informed, much more than just the average schmo who is stopping at the at the McDonald's on the way home and picking up a six pack of butt. He's not just he's he has researched this and he's investigated it. He knows. I mean, like I said, for him that's great. I'm. I'm not really gonna do the keto thing because I gotta tell you the truth i I like my homemade bread far too much I like I like Christmas desserts I like Thanksgiving desserts I don't really want to give that up I don't want to deprive my kids of you know a, a weekend dessert treat of pumpkin cheesecake or whatever we got mm-hmm.
1: yeah and I'm here to tell you you don't have to. <laughs> Is that, that's my audience is people actually my, I, I consider my, my audience people that are into the scientific angle of nutrition such that they're, you know, cause a lot of people will not watch even like a 15 minute video about like they, they just want somebody to tell them what to eat and that's the end of it. Um, so I like to talk to people that are interested in hearing at least a little bit of the reasoning and perhaps people that have tried one of these you know, panacea, whether it's keto or if they were doing, you know, a vegan diet or whatever it is, and that they're not happy with it. And they're kind of, they still believe in it, or they're scared to give it up, or they've been, you know, for lack of a better word, indoctrinated into thinking it's the only way to be healthy. I I would want my audience to be somebody like that and to say, well, you know, let me present you with the facts as I understand them. And then you can make your own decision, but, you know, things like that. I would never go to somebody who's on a diet that I don't agree with, but who appears to be healthy and is happy with it and tell them to get off of that diet. No, that's the,
0: the, that, that is similar to the arrogance of the people who are on the diet who demand you do it too.
1: Yeah, exactly. That that, it's projective, you know, it's basically, that's something that somebody who's not comfortable with what they're doing does, you know, that everybody else has to, um, uh, validate it. You know, like I said, my beliefs, I, I don't really have super, you know, I have a few beliefs like about things like vegetable oil that I'm pretty solid on everything else. I'm pretty flexible and I really don't care if anybody agrees with me. I don't require any validation for them. And because of that, I don't, you know, have to push for people. Although I do evangelize for things like liver, I don't, uh, I don't end friendships or I don't, you know, I don't badger people over and over again about it. Uh, maybe for some friends I do. I, I do bug them some, have you had liver yet?
0: <laughs> oh, um do you have any anything you want to pitch?
1: Oh uh I have that YouTube channel. I don't know if you do you have an area for like links in your yeah, I'll uh I'll send you the link. All I have on there is that one cooking video. I sent it to you already, but this this one is red
0: curry oxtail
1: with potatoes. I evangelize for those too. So joint meats contain a lot of collagen, which is you know that that's a fad right now too.
0: I would try. We got a couple of problems here. Um, I would change the the meat just because the kids just the, the the whole idea of something that's not just a burger freaks them out.
1: I'm I'm gonna have one on how to cook liver um, and. And I should have. I actually, I told people I'd be doing it by now. But my plan with that is to have these little cooking videos, maybe some science videos, and also do a stream. Maybe I would try to do it once a week and take like a, a nutritional topic, m- maybe a popular science topic, something maybe a little bit political, like science in you know, politics and science, or you know how you know what I mean, <laughs> and uh, talk about it. You know some for some amount of time, half an hour to an hour or something like that. So, yeah, I'll give you that channel link, and that's basically it. Because, yeah, I do have that website, but that's I will relaunch it at some point, but uh, it's not up right now.
0: The the problem with the curry, uh, red curry, is because it's got red peppers in it, and um, a strange thing happened when my wife had both of our – the first kid, and it didn't go backwards on the second one. She used to eat native Thai hot food. If you even put green pepper in something and take it out, that little bit of juice from the pepper will make – will she'll be in the fetal position for two days. Really? Not, not a speck. I mean nothing. You can't even touch it. It's awful because – well, they have a lot of flavor, but also she likes the flavor and the heat. She can't have it.
1: That is very interesting. You know, I'm going to think about that. Uh, can she still eat um, – how about like eggplants and potatoes? Uh,
0: not a big fan of eggplant, but she'll eat them. Uh, potatoes, not a
1: problem. It's not a nightshade – okay, okay. Yeah. You so it's not a nightshade problem. Okay, because uh, – I see what I'm doing there. <laughs> All right, yeah. Uh, that's a really interesting little conundrum. Uh and very unfortunate, yeah. I love spicy food, not just for the heat, but the flavor that it brings from the peppers. Yeah. Uh,
0: if you can find a solution to it, she'd be thrilled. But I'm gonna. This is gonna take more editing than I expected, which is not a problem. It's just gonna. It's it's focus intensive and deliberate. Um. So probably. What day is today? Fourteen. Probably I'll have it done, ready to be posted on Monday, Christmas Eve. Um, probably going to be episode 14, I think. I've lost, I've lost track. I don't know how Todd keeps track of 1300 episodes.
1: Yeah. He he probably doesn't have them off the top of his head. You know who does though? Shout out to, uh, I I don't know. Well, yeah, he wouldn't mind if I said his name. Uh, you know, Ryan in the group, (laughs) I, I talk to him sometimes. He, uh, he like has all the episodes memorized.
0: (laughs) That's fairly impressive.
1: Like he'll be like, oh yeah, episode, you know, 900 and I'm not even going to say one because he'll know what it is. (laughs) So some people can uh, keep track of that stuff.